the Gucci girl, Prada professional, coach queen, or target trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. Cranberry Radio proudly presents Purse Strings. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan, chief storyteller at Styled Retail, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow. Now, please welcome our host of Purse Strings, Maria Retan. Good afternoon and welcome to Purse Strings. I'm your host, Maria Retan. Thanks so much for joining me today. You can catch Purse Strings every Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Each and every week, you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country. The 51% of us who control more than 80% of all the spending. The woman. Well, today we're kicking off a six part series that will look back at purse strings over the last 10 years we've been on the air. Yep, that's right, 10 years. Hard to believe, especially for those of you who maybe have been trudging along with me this last decade. Uh, This show is actually the longest running marketing to women show still on the air today. And we're so grateful to have so many of you, our fans, still listening after all these years. Those of you who may be newer to the show, this series should put in perspective how far the world of marketing to women has come in the past decade. And it has come a long way. We have a long way to go, but it's definitely come a long way. When we began, marketing to women was a niche recognized as a thing in 2002 with pioneers in the space, Marty Berletta and Tom Petters, who both still work in the marketing to women space. It's hard to believe that considering considering women comprise 51% of the population and hold trillions in dollars in wealth. And we outrank numbers of men in colleges and graduate programs nationally. And we are major players in workplaces today. So it's hard to believe that we would actually be a niche as late as 2002, but that was indeed the case. And I hope that Purse Strings has helped shed the light on the fact that marketing to women is not niche. And in fact, if anything, marketing to women is the mainstream. Um, What we learned, of course, is that women end up swaying the decision in male-dominated industries. So even those industries that didn't feel like they should market to women have soon learned that they need to. They have to get smart about women and what we want. So fast forward to 2017 today, and marketing to women is still being talked about in some regards, as I mentioned, in niche terms from time to time. But I'm happy to report that now more than ever, the conversation is about how to smartly and effectively reach the consumer, whomever she happens to be. And she, of course, is very diverse. That is the key here to understand that diversity. One of the biggest ways today that we have a relationship with our female consumer is by going direct to her. That was not always the case. Social media emerged as a player in marketing while purse strings was on the air. And in fact, in 2007, Facebook was still fairly new. Twitter was emerging. Pinterest, Snapchat, Vine, and Instagram were all on the horizon, not even created yet. It's hard to believe what's happened in the last 10 years. For our first throwback today, we're sharing some clips of interviews that talk about this emerging communication channel. Some of you may remember these interviews and others, this may be new information and yet not new as so much has changed since these conversations took place. I hope you enjoy the listen. So 
back in the day, we talked to Frank DeMaria De about social listening, the importance of corporate listening on social media conversations. At the time, that was kind of a novel process, the fact that companies would actual, actually listen in on what their fans, or maybe not such fans, were saying about them. And when was it okay to intervene into those conversations? And how do you scrape and find those conversations? Um, it was all so new at the time. Uh, and once you listen to what Frank has to say, I think you'll see how far we've come. Check out my conversation with Frank DeMaria. Reputation management is something I know my clients have to stay on top of. I'm sure you're staying on top of it for your clients. Um, but, you know, part of the challenge, I think, is, is exactly that trying to not only make sure that you are capturing everything that's being said across social channels, but that, um, you know, it's, it's got to be hard to, um, you know, understand what consumers are saying in general. Can you talk a little bit about where consumers can go to understand companies, their product and services, and then also to share their own opinions about things? Yeah, I think it's the second part. That's uh, what we see from consumers. It's where they go to actually voice an opinion rather than to find out more about a company. I mean, traditionally, they still do go to websites, and they do look at a company's Facebook page and a company's presence in social. What we look at is what's being said. So often companies will come to us and say, well, you know, we don't do a lot in social. And they say, well, that's, that, that may be, but there are a lot of people who consume your products, be they consumer products or other. Um, who are saying things or there are conversations about your brand that are taking place on this thing called the social web um, that you need to pay attention to. So in a sense, we're not trying to capture everything. We're just looking for those things that are most impactful that, that would actually impact the, the, the corporate communication strategy that is being executed by a company. Right. So really honing in on the relevant conversation. So how do you start that process of calling through all the conversations to get down to what's really relevant? Yeah, and the reason we built this company is because, you know, as practitioners and, and my partners and I are all out of the communications world, as are the people who look at the data that we scrub, um, we found that there wasn't a tool that was actually effectively doing it. So either we had a data feed that gave us way too much or it wasn't effective in finding those things that we were looking for. So the solution we came up with was to develop our own search technology that is very good at putting um, information into relevant buckets based on keywords, but also the associations with those words that, that are important. Um, we scrape all that data down, and then we actually have human beings with real communication experience um, sift through that data looking for the relevant, uh, re- relevant uh, conversations or relevant pieces that might be sitting at, in the, on the social web. Well, and once you've done all of that, you've identified the conversations. I mean, then you have to, I would expect, create and execute a communications plan that remains true to the brand. And oftentimes that needs to happen in real time, you know, especially for those things that require urgent response. Uh, Do you find that companies tend to have protocols in place already or is that something that that you tend to be doing for them, and then do you, you know, are, are you recommending there are certain people within those companies that should own it? So our, our approach, or where we sit in the mix, is not in giving the advice as to what to do with what 
what we found, but to identify that intelligence is you know, coming from the coming from the corporate communications world. There's nothing more I'd love than to give advice, but our <laughs> our approach is not to. And yes, and I know you can't shut me up. <laughs> Let them do it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but it's giving them those things that allow them to kind of course correct a communication strategy. So if you're going through ISIS, or if you're going through MA, or if you just want to monitor what's being said about your company um, brand or products or um, or an issue that you're facing, we will give you the intelligence to actually give you the layer to allow you to course correct your strategy to make sure you're addressing things in the right way and to take the decision whether to react or not. On the consumer front, you know, I, I've sat with many corporate um, communications executives who um, you know, have a team in place that are, are looking at what consumers are saying, and from a customer service perspective, they need they need to react very very quickly to the things they're seeing. So, if you're Con Edison, for example, and you're 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 monitoring Twitter and other other blogs and places where people will voice a concern about something that's happening locally, they need to take that in house and to look at those things and decide what is the policy we'll put in place to react to those people. So, giving a good customer service, as it were. So, remember when hashtags were new? Yeah, seems like a million years ago. Well, Mary Lee Bliss was on Purse Strings back in the day, helping me ferret out why hashtags? When were they helpful? Who was using them and how? And how were they supposed to help corporate growth? And who was really driving these new social media trends? Um, So I think that now hashtags are ubiquitous. uh, But back at the time Mary Lee and I had the conversation, they were fairly mysterious to all of us. So check out what Mary Lee had to tell me about hashtags. The way you came into um, kind of my awareness was through a Media Post article that you had written. It was about millennials. It was also about hashtags, which I thought was interesting. That caught my eye. And the fact that hashtags, the growth of that is quite phenomenal. Um, Why, in your opinion, have they taken off the way they have? And I'm sure millennials are driving that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. They are. um, You know, millennials are kind of the hub of a lot of the trends that come out of social media. And hashtags kind of fulfill a few things that millennials need in social media. One is that they help them filter through things. They actually act as a search tool so that they can filter through all of the stuff that is out there because millennials live in a world where they're bombarded by media and they participate in it and they're happy to be a part of it. But at the same time, sometimes they need tools in order to filter through kind of the, you know, millions and millions of pieces of data and information and media that are out there. So that's the first thing that hashtags have done that have made them incredibly popular. If you put a hashtag, um, hashtag from where I stand is a popular hashtag on, on Instagram. If you look at all of those, you see a commonality, a common thread. And that's the second thing that hashtags are able to do that is really um, what millennials are looking for out of social media, which is participatory conversation. They allow a conversation and creativity to be displayed um, and a conversation to be, really be uh, pushed forward um, Involving people and, you know, usually millennials, but often other generations as well now, um, from all over the world. You don't have to be standing next to each other to uh, be a part of this conversation and uh, to display your creativity. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny because it seems like there's hashtags everywhere you turn. In fact, they've become quite the butt of a lot of jokes. I mean, The Tonight Show has its <laughs> hashtag. I love that, that hashtag. They're talking in hashtags. It just makes yes, me crack up every time I see it. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of them out there. I mean, you talked a lot about that it does have value and that you can see what's trending and people want to be part of that, that social connection, if you will. But 
how why how should we be using hashtags? What value do they truly bring? And how can we best, you know, in general, best utilize them? So it's true. Hashtags are everywhere. And it's kind of reached a, a little bit of a peak and uh, kind of gone a little bit over the line for some people. <laughs> you know, they're on every commercial that you see, every movie trailer, you know, in magazine ads. And it's almost become a little unnecessary. What we've seen is that brands want to participate in this trend, but it seems like not many of them know exactly the best way to do so. So they'll, you know, put a hashtag in front of their slogan, put it at the end of their commercial and kind of expect people or hope that people will just participate, um, use that hashtag in their own messaging. But what ends up happening is that there's not a lot there as a call to action. There's not a lot there that's going to make the millennial woman who's watching remember that hashtag and actually then use it in her her social conversations. So we've seen a lot of misuse of hashtags. And even though they're everywhere in marketing, they're not being used successfully by everyone. And the other thing that you mentioned is, you know, they're part of pop culture conversation and they've kind of made their way into millennial and entertainment lingo. Um, Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show does a great job because he (laughs) is kind of part of that conversation. Um, He's not a millennial himself, but he definitely exhibits a lot of millennial behavior. And we often sometimes say it's, you know, a mindset, not an age. Um, And he's not really making fun of the use of hashtags. He's saying that he does the same thing. He does this as well. He uses Twitter. He's on and he's a part of it. Um, What we have also seen, though, is the opposite side of that coin, where hashtags are actually used to make fun of people who use them. So there was a Subway ad last year that um, kind of was making fun of the social media users by uh, having an actor use hashtags ad nauseum, and it was clear that it was an irritating thing (laughs) that you wouldn't want to be sitting in front of. Um, So we've kind of seen everybody run the gamut, and um, there's still kind of a lot of confusion out there from brands, I think, as to how to use them correctly. Thanks again to everybody for listening in over the last decade, and as you can tell from this show, we've said a lot about social. You're going to want to stick around when we come back from break. We've got more great interviews from the last decade of First Drinks. Purse Strings. We'll be right back after a word from our advertisers. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas, and creative things. New business idea, pitch deck, PowerPoint presentation, song lyrics, source code, killer blog posts. We help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at PriorThings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly slash Circle. 
Jamming and spamming. Cashing in the clicks. SEO is always in session. Only on Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. Thanks again to everybody for listening in over the last decade. And as you can tell from this show, we've said a lot about social. You're going to want to stick around when we come back from break. We've got more great interviews from the last decade of Purse Strings. One of my most favorite guests I had on uh, was Yvonne DeVita. And one of the reasons I loved Yvonne and still do today was the name of her company, Dickless Marketing. That kind of sums up marketing to women in just one phrase, Dickless Marketing. Well, Yvonne came on to talk about social sharing and how to use social to build relationships with women and some of the pitfalls that you might fall into um, that go even beyond social. So check out what Yvonne DeVito with Dickless Marketing had to say about being real-time on social. It's really interesting that much of the content in Dickless Marketing is relevant today in the sense that women really want those relationships. And I did talk about that in the book. You can't just throw email marketing at us or direct mail marketing at us. You can't build a website and think because you have pink on it that women are going to stop by. You've got to build the relationships. That has not changed. Uh, Women like to have that 800 number. We want to be able to call on the phone. One of the big things I talked about in the book is the fact that my computer monitor isn't your computer monitor. So the blue that you're telling me about might be aqua or green on my monitor. So I need that 800 number so I can call and find out, is this really the color I think it is? Um, Does the sizes run too big or too small or, you know. The other thing is women want to um, talk to other women. So the sites that actually allow us to converse with each other that open themselves up, and this was six years ago, People were beginning to open themselves up to having reviews on the site. Well, women want to see those reviews because the people we're tapping into when we make our buying decisions are friends and family. Mm -hmm. So those things are still standard. They've just grown. The reality is with social media, women have discovered that not only can we connect, share, advise each other. We can do it in real time on Twitter. We can do it in our blog. We can do it on Facebook. We have more power now than we ever had before. And the reality is we're building our little niches online. So we have Blog Her, which is one of the biggest uh, women's blogging networks online. And we have Mom 2.0, and we have Blistum, and we have sites like that. iVillage redid their site recently. Um, We won't get into that because I wasn't very fond of it, but they are coming on board with the recognition that women talk to each other. We've always been the ones that want to converse with each other. So Dickless Marketing wanted people to understand that, that, that women today have money in their purse. And it's interesting, money in their purse concept, because that goes back to Susan B. Anthony. Susan mm-hmm. B. Anthony is the one who said um, a woman's purse, a woman needs to have autonomy and she needs to have a purse of her own, is, is uh, Virginia Woolf's a room of her own kind of thing. So it's not really new, but the, rea- the new thing is, Women recognize it. 
women are flocking to connect and converse and share, and younger women especially. So my daughters, they're going to go online. They have Mm -hmm. friends that they see on a regular basis um, at the coffee shop, at work, and other places. But they also have a whole community online. They want to know what movies are popular. They want to know should they shop at Chico's or should they shop at uh, The Gap. So those Mm -hmm. are kinds of the things that we talk about in Dickless Marketing that are still prevalent today. They've grown. Social media has made them more powerful. It's given women, I like to say, a collective voice so that we're now online doing business, getting personal because moms today have hundreds of other moms that they can tap into, and we're also being political online. So we've moved beyond the Dickless marketing world into social media where we're taking a stand, whether that stand is uh, breastfeeding my child or starting a new business or getting into the political discussions of the day. Well, and you've called out a few things, Yvonne, that make a very successful site. One, as you said, is the interaction that a site provides for women to do that peer-to-peer recommendation, that that discussion, that congregating online is an important factor to a successful uh, site. Another might be, you know, peer reviews, because we are very much influenced by what other women have to say. If they've already tried it and they like it, that's a huge endorsement and a reason to purchase. But are there other things... um, related to a successful site that listeners need to be aware of or maybe conversely there are things that that they should absolutely not do online because it's a huge turnoff any any thoughts there i can tell you that one of the most powerful things that happened in the last um, six years is the ability to allow your customer to customize your product and so I would say that anyone listening should seriously think about what they're offering, what they're selling, and how they can allow the women who are coming to buy, and women buy more often than men, number one, and number two, as you know, Maria, they influence. So if I'm not buying it, I may be influencing, and the reality is we like the customization, whatever that means. If it's a T-shirt, we want to tell you what colors and whether it should be long sleeve or short sleeve, and maybe we have other ideas, but... It works for almost anything. If you're selling services, we want to tell you what we need. So the more ability you have and the more open you are to allowing us to customize packages and create something that's going to work for us, the more successful you're going to be. And that may be creating a site online that offers ideas, and then there's a section where, what is your idea so that we can share it? Women love to share their ideas, and why not? Uh, the other thing I think people need to be very focused on that we got away from for a while is the face-to-face ability to look in someone's eyes. So we have online, we have social media, we have all of these wonderful tools where we can connect, but there still is nothing more powerful and getting together face-to-face. So if you have an opportunity to create a local event and get the local women in your area to come, you know, put on a spa night, um, have uh, your top ten customers invite their friends uh, to the movies, and you pay. 
um, you know, do something special for women that is offline, and they will take that conversation online. They will create that viral marketing campaign for you. You know, I think a lot of people are forgetting that. It should not be forgotten. We want to meet face-to-face. We want to be able to laugh with our friends. We want to be able to share something that we've actually connected with in a physical sense. And then we're going Mm -hmm. to go online with it, again, on Facebook, on our blogs, and things like that. Um, You know, the other new thing is don't expect, because a woman, one of the things that lipsticking I'll tell you, Lipsticking is a marketing to women blog. It's mainly about business and how to connect to women in business and how to help women in business be better. I get pitched things that are just not relevant. And so I would caution people when they are trying to approach the women's market and they would like to engage bloggers and women that are in in niche markets online, to be very selective. Understand who the woman is. Understand what the site is about. Um, Too many people just think, oh, it's marketing to women. I can send them sex toys and lingerie. And, you know, there are places for that. My blog is not one of them. Well, Joanne Bamberger uh, is a woman who does it all. She's the editor-in-chief of The Broadside. She's a pundit mom publisher and a blogger herself. And she was on talking about this whole idea of aggregating. And with The Broadside, she aggregates really good writing across a a wide range of topics. And um, the whole idea of aggregation was somewhat new and how it could be used by consumers to find information they wanted out there on the intrawebs. Check out my short conversation pulled here for this recap show with Joanne Bamberger. Sort of one of the things that I realized as I wrote my book was that there are so many women out there, writing, especially online, writing about how politics really play in their lives and what's important to them. And sadly, we're not getting a lot of uh, airtime, if you will. We're not getting a lot of attention. And that combined with the fact that I was seeing many of the online outlets that had originally focused on women's opinion writing sort of going away and getting folded into their larger, you know, co-ed sites, um, that there really needed to be a place where women could come and share their writing on opinions and commentary, both on culture and politics and important issues to them, both in serious and in amusing ways. Now, there are obviously plenty of wonderful sites out there that focus on entertainment and fashion, and I have nothing against that because I love some fashion. (laughs) Um, But I really wanted to create a place where some of these women could come and we could aggregate that Mm -hmm. so that people could find it. You know, there are so many, there are like 35 million women online every week and all sorts of blogs. How do you sort through that and find, you know, the good writing? And and that's what I really want to try to achieve with the broadside is aggregating that for people. Mm-hmm. Aggregating the good writing on many, many, you know, great topics. And I was looking at your list of contributors and they come from a broad range of backgrounds, academics, journalists, some are stay-at-home moms. I'm curious, how did you choose them or did they choose you? And you talk about aggregating, so some of it may be organic as well. 
Uh, you know, a little bit of everything. You know, some of it, there were people that I knew whose writing I really enjoyed and admired, and I wanted to be able to highlight that. Some of the contributors have uh, reached out to us and said they would they would like to participate. And uh, some are people that I've, you know, tried to twist their arms a little bit because they, some are academics or, you know, sort of in other lines of work, but have very powerful opinions on topics that, you know, are not getting written about. And I wanted to try to find women from a variety of arenas to bring those writings and perspectives together. And we do have a couple of guys as well who we (laughs) we enjoy having them on the site. Uh, But it is mostly women writers. And it's just, there, there have been so many times when, you know, we're still building the readership, but there have been so many times when someone has reached out and said, you know, I've read so many articles about X topic, but I have not read anyone write in that perspective or from that mm-hmm. angle who, or who has raised a particular issue. Oh, I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I would like to cultivate mm-hmm. at the site. Mm-hmm. Get people to really see a broad range of opinion in one place, it sounds like. I, I am curious if you are seeking to to maybe change something with the broadside. I mean, I know you've talked about you want to be able to bring this level of discourse and thinking and great and great work to the fold, but are you seeking to change any policies if there are enough strong voices to back them? Well, I haven't really thought about using the site in that way yet, but I do see that there is that possible trajectory. And what I sort of have envisioned was, you know, sort of creating this site and then possibly uh, creating some online courses and webinars where, you know, women can come and say, well, you know, hey, I would really like to learn how to write an op-ed. I would love to write a letter to the editor or to my congressperson, and I'm really not sure how to do it. I find it too intimidating. Um, Sort of help women learn how to do that. And then you know, sort of try to figure out organically what issues do our readers really focus on. And I think that that could be an opportunity to, you know, pick one or two particular issues that the site could become an advocate for. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'll get there, I bet. I bet it'll naturally, it'll, it, it, these things have a way of finding their paths. I bet, right. I bet that, that some topics will naturally um, come to the top. I'm sure. Um, you know, kind of shifting gears to your book from 2011, Mothers of Intention, you, you know, you've been called the first person to shine the light on um, how powerful women can change the political landscape utilizing social media. And we know the power of social is is huge. But I'm just curious, how do you think social media is one of the variety of tools women should be using to try to keep the topics close to our hearts top of mind with Washington insiders or are there other what are the other ways that we can make sure that we're not just falling out of favor in non-presidential elections or, or non-governorial elections right women should use everybody should use but especially women should use every tool that they've got in their toolbox and social media is just one. I mean, there are many ways to reach uh, policymakers and influencers in Washington or in your town or in your state. 
uh, by email or if you go to their websites, you can send them messages. But it, it is true that oftentimes those types of communications are discounted a bit. Like if you, t- if you go on some line to sign a petition and it's a form petition and lots of people sign the same thing, that is going to get less attention than if you pick up the phone and call your congressman or your mayor or your city council person, or if you write them a letter, or if you reach out to them on their personal sites and personal blogs. Interestingly, uh, more politicians, more on the local level than the federal level, but are starting to have their own blogs so constituents can see what they're doing. Reach out to them in that venue mm-hmm. and uh, or, you know, go to meetings. I mean, social media is a tool and it is a powerful one. But when it comes to trying to influence people in any way, we want to be able to use all the tools in our arsenal. And that's going to be the most effective. Mm-hmm. Thanks to my producer for another great show, and I should say thanks to George for a decade of great shows. I certainly couldn't have done it without him. Purse Strings would never have survived without his support and his expertise and making me, I hope, look good over the last 10 years. Please join me right here next week for another edition of Purse Strings, 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Until then, make it a great one, and feel free to continue listening over the next several weeks as we continue our look back with our six-part series, A Decade of Purse Strings. Have a great day. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited 